Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And I'm back from vacation, John, and nobody wants to hear me complain about my air travel woes, so I won't. Uh, instead, I'll start the show with a callback to our last podcast before my trip when we had Darren Ravel on and we posted a video highlight on Twitter afterward, which went on to become our most viewed gamble on Twitter video to date, in which Ravel talked about his wife suspecting him of cheating because he was sneaking around and being secretive about his investment in a digital horse. And several Twitter replies called BS on the story on account of saying they didn't believe Darren could find anyone to cheat on his wife with. Uh, John, at moments like this, are you glad you don't have 2 million Twitter followers and nobody on social media cares about you enough to take personal digs at you? Uh, I mean, fame really is a, a fickle mistress, isn't it? Uh, to sort of tie into that criticism. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, the more accurate response, I would say, would be that it's hard to believe Darren would take more time away from his laser focus on collectibles, his job and his family. That go. wouldn't be mean enough for many in the peanut gallery <laughs> at the risk of using yet another phrase that has never been heard before by anyone under the age of 50. And mentioning how the duty to explain it would only dig me in deeper. So I won't do that. Um, <laughs> but it is a curious thing about fame, isn't it? Uh, in all seriousness. Uh, now, I see we have a combined Twitter follower count of a, almost 15,000, mm -hmm. but both of us are under perhaps the big tripwire that is 10,000 followers of an account. So it looks like you'll find out if my theory is correct about that tripwire around late 2024 or so. Maybe, although uh, it seems I, I've heard that like Twitter follower numbers aren't growing that fast anymore because at this point, everyone who wants to be on Twitter is on Twitter. It's not it's not like the early days when you you know you got to a thousand after a month and then you got to two thousand a month later or something like that. It's uh pretty slow growing these days. But uh yeah perhaps someday I'll hit ten thousand. Um I, I have to say this was my first time ever talking to Darren Ravel. Uh, I know his reputation. I know he has his eccentricities and I get why some people find him annoying, but I really liked him, uh, you know, before, during and after the recording, he was down to earth, friendly, charismatic. So mark me in the pro Rovell camp. And uh, look, wh whatever you may think of his romantic appeal, he has money and anyone who has money <laughs> can find someone willing to have an affair with them. Yeah, I, and we talked about it before the uh, actual podcast, but Darren and I go back at least 15 years and uh, yeah, he's always been uh, friendly and everything else. And I, I yeah, I, I kind of get the whatever agita that people get, but, um, you know, we've always got along very well. And, uh, you know, I mentioned, I saw him in Manhattan maybe a month ago. I mentioned, oh, maybe you want to go on the podcast. Absolutely. Just send me an email. Boom, done happening. You know, I mean, so I, I respect that. So I appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, you know, people, you can, you can let up a little bit on Darren, give him a break. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So with, with that, then a, a belated thank you again to Darren for coming on our podcast yeah. and for sharing that video on Twitter and helping it get 
get seen. And uh, thank you to everyone out there for joining us for episode number 197 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 196 episodes, they're all available on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. And here's a little extra encouragement to write a review. When we get to episode 200 in three weeks... Mm -hmm we'll read a few of our favorite reviews on the pod. So maybe you'll make it onto the podcast. Just make sure your review doesn't mention either of us being unable to attract a partner for an extramarital affair. Those reviews aren't getting read. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> now coming up a little later in the show, I'm going to be joined by props.cash founder and CEO Pete Smolik, whose relatively new app is getting a lot of positive buzz in the sports betting community. We'll ask Pete about how he developed the idea, whether the app is aimed at sharps or casuals and more. But first, it's been a, you know, I would say fairly hectic, busy uh, two weeks in the world of gambling since our last podcast, that is. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. With two weeks of news to cover, we're going to give you four news items instead of the usual three. And we start with the big news out of the North Carolina legislature last night, where it would appear hopes of legalizing mobile sports betting in the state in 2022 have just about died. Uh, two separate bills were crawling along, having passed through a House Judiciary Committee on Tuesday and then passing through the House Rules Committee Wednesday afternoon. But later in the day Wednesday, when the bills reached the House floor, things took a downward turn. First, the House adopted an amendment to the bills banning betting on college sports, not just in-state college sports like in New Jersey, New York, and a few other states, all college sports. In North Carolina, a state where the pro sports teams tend to take a back seat. <laughs> but the House soldiered on, voted on one of the bills, SB 38, and it passed by the slimmest possible margin, 51 to 50. Moments later, the other bill, SB 688, failed by the exact same 51 to 50 margin, stopped by a single vote. And since it is believed that both bills needed to pass for the governor to sign off on mobile sports betting, it's over for North Carolina this year, unless there's some loophole we're missing or there's some fast and furious movement on a new bill before the legislative session ends in a week. North Carolina got close, but barring a miracle, didn't get it done. John, in your opinion, if the current bill had an amendment banning betting on college sports, is it just as well that this failed? Uh, and any other thoughts on the drama in the Tar Heel state? Uh, I'm just imagining the research down there by lawmakers. Hello, sir, ma'am. I'm calling from your local elected officials office. If you could bet legally on anything here in North Carolina, what would it be? Oh, you say Duke and North Carolina basketball. Hmm, OK. Anything else? Oh, all college basketball and especially March Madness. Interesting. Anything more than that? Ah, college football. Okay. Thanks for the information. We've gotten a lot of feedback just like this. So, of course, we're going to ban all of that only <laughs> in our sports betting bill. <laughs> I mean, you know, I talked before about witnessing firsthand lobbying done in state house by various groups. Mm -hmm. But if I had to pick a state where it turned out the illegal bookmakers had such a strong influence, I would not have guessed North Carolina. And yeah, that's sarcasm. But still, yeah. the corner bookie had a very good night for sure. It wasn't going out of business anyway, but still, I mean, now it looks like it's about 40 miles from Durham to the southern Virginia border where they have mobile sports betting now. But from the map, I'm not positive the cell tower reception would work there. So it's not really a, a, you know, a realistic option for North Carolinas. I'd like that better than North Carolinians in case that's the one. <laughs> uh, we're going to try that. They're not going to do it. So uh, yay, corner bookies, I guess. 
You have a lot of uh, strong opinions on uh, what people in various states should call themselves. Yes, I know that I that's do. one of your things. Okay. It's a thing, yeah. <laughs> um, so one clarification on the actual voting. Uh, according okay. to our colleague Bennett Conlin, who covered all this for Sports Handle, one of the yes votes on the second bill said immediately, immediately afterward that he voted in error and meant to be a no vote, uh, but, it, but it didn't affect the outcome. So, you know, officially it failed 51 to 50, but it should have been 52, 49. And I, I'm not sure exactly what the procedure would have been if that one vote had swung passage, if it had passed 51, 50, and then this guy pipes in to say, oops, I meant to vote. No, I'm not sure what they do in that case, but I guess. Yeah, I was really given one and a half votes. So I'm hoping to get a karma committee thing for points bet to uh, refund my money. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, in the end, North Carolina is another state with just enough politicians who simply don't get it. Uh, you know, the, the no voters are up there grandstanding about how Jesus wouldn't like sports betting. Uh, I, I'm not going out of my way to drag religion into this. I'm just quoting the argument that Representative Larry <laughs> Pittman actually made. Uh, uh, there was also uh, someone talking about how betting on college sports would threaten the purity of college sports. Uh, this was the case made by Representative <laughs> Marsha Mori. Whatever holes there may or may not be in their reasoning, the big thing they're missing is that people in North Carolina are already betting on sports. Exactly. They're betting on these college games, but they're doing it in other states or with their bookies or with offshore sports books. And they're sending the tax money to these other states or generating no tax money for anyone in the U.S. And of course, these legislators are, are just delaying the inevitable. I mean, if the bills came this close in 2022, Got to figure North Carolina is a big favorite in 2023 after another year of watching tax dollars go to Tennessee and Virginia. So whatever religious figure one might turn to uh, who, you, who you think would hate sports betting, you're just delaying by one year that religious figure's theoretical posthumous displeasure with North Carolina. Uh, I'm especially thinking about Duke because the the affluence of their uh, alumni is astounding, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, one of the highest in the country for sure. And so the number of uh, Duke grads who still live in North Carolina and are betting four or five figures per game, mm -hmm. practically right. uh, on their basketball games is probably very significant. And so I understand that there could be opposition to people actually doing such a thing. But as you said, they already do it. So yep. now what do you want to do with it? And I think a lot of people on that level that I'm talking about, they would probably go for a, a legal book, you know, because they're not really that worried about getting caught or, you know, right. losing their money or whatever. But, eh, you know, what the heck? You, it's legal and regulated now. I'll, I'll go straight and uh, I might not get the best line, but uh, I got plenty of money. I don't really care. So they would do it. Uh, but instead, they're going to stick with the bookies for another year, like you say. Yeah. And I think that the big story to watch here for, for 2023 is just whether this college sports amendment shows up in the next bills. Uh, I, I have no idea what to expect on that front, but I, I, I do know that any sports betting legislation banning college betting in North Carolina is a lousy piece of legislation. If that's the direction they continue to go. It is, it is pretty amazing. I mean, you know, when, you know, New Jersey, uh, I have to admit, started the whole, the ball rolling here years ago, <laughs> right. uh, but it's just Rutgers football, basically. And right. Seton Hall basketball, sort of not that big a deal. North Carolina, that's what I'm talking about. And, you know, Connecticut at UConn, especially women's basketball. Uh, okay. But that's about it. You know, I mean, these other states that ban it on well, New York, that's another story, but, uh, but North Carolina, you, if you're going to have betting, you got to let 
Duke and, and UNC uh, bets got through for sure. Yeah, I mean, banning college betting, all college betting in North Carolina <laughs> would be equivalent to if Pennsylvania legislators had said, we'll legalize sports betting, uh, but not on the Eagles or Steelers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Basically, what it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go Hornets, I guess. Um, I guess, yes. All right. For our second news item, we have a story about offshore betting of a sort. Uh, yeah. Last Friday, BetMGM announced a partnership with Carnival Corporation for sports betting on cruise ships, making both digital and retail wagering available on their cruises. Here's what's interesting. When the ships are docked in legal sports betting states, customers will be able to place bets. When they're docked in states without legal sports betting, customers won't be able to bet. But once the ship is out to sea and not in any state, the betting will be allowed. And this strikes me as the biggest gray area we've ever seen in terms of legality. The boats will be in international waters, but does that mean the betting will be unregulated, even though BetMGM is a regulated operator? It's all quite confusing, although casinos have long been permitted aboard cruise ships in international waters. John, what do you make of this? Is BetMGM risking its good standing with U.S. regulators over this? And I'm taking the under on 0.5 cruises John Brennan has ever been on. Do I win? <laughs> you are a winner with that one, Eric. <laughs> now, from what I've heard about cruise ship rooms, that's six foot tall, both my head and my toes could touch opposite walls as they, <laughs> as they fruitlessly try to fall asleep each night. No, thanks. Um, now, for some reason, I can't fathom. I haven't seen an advertisement for like a Titanic themed cruise. But if they had one and they'd let me book a room in the ship's bowels with the fellow Irish help, like in the movie, that looked like a hell of a lot more fun than what the swells were doing above with the classical music and precious hors d'oeuvres. No, thanks. Give me steerage or give me death. Uh, now, as far as bet MGM, though, uh, I'd like to think they ran this by New Jersey regulators first just to be on the safe side mm -hmm. because they're kind of the gold standard. And if they haven't, I'd suggest they pick up the phone like now. But yeah. I've convinced myself they already got that all clear, though. Yeah. So I have to make an admission. I've been on two cruises, so I'm, I'm not on the, the over on one and a half. I never paid yeah. for any myself. My, my parents mm -hmm. took the whole family on a cruise uh, yeah. once about five years ago and once about 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm a sucker for an all-inclusive resort trip. And a cruise <laughs> is just an all-inclusive resort that moves around. Mm -hmm. um, now, post-COVID and post that story about the cruise where the plumbing was busted and the whole ship smelled like a porta potty. Maybe I'd be a little reluctant to cruise again going forward. But prior to all this, I will admit, I'm one of those people who enjoys cruises. Uh, plus, I won the poker tournament on board my second cruise, turned a $50 buy-in into like 900 bucks. So uh, there's that. Um, now, for, for a story one of our writers is working on, a, a follow-up on the cruise news, I tested something out on my flight home on Sunday. There was curiosity whether geolocation lets you wager while you're in the airspace above mm. a legal sports betting state. So I waited till near the end of the flight when I'm almost certain we were over Pennsylvania. And I logged into one of my accounts successfully on the plane's Wi-Fi. I guess if I logged in, that uh, probably proves we were over Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, but it didn't let me bet. Uh, it said it couldn't verify my location. So uh, I assume the same will happen once you're out on the water, that legal U.S. geolocation will fail. So now you're betting outside a U.S. jurisdiction using the international offshore rules or, or, or lack thereof. Um, I don't know. It's all very hairy. But just like you were just saying about New Jersey and BetMGM, I would tend to assume BetMGM has gotten some assurances that, that regulators won't hold this against them. I, I don't think they'd blow up their U.S. business just to add cruise ship business. 
Yeah. And I, I just, I don't, I don't really, it doesn't uh, set any bells off for me. I mean, you're way out in the open sea, you're partying, you know, it's great. It just, I don't know. It, it seems like you're in the middle of nowhere. Like you said, the casino's already there anyway right. on the boat. And now you can also bet on a game. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really see a problem with it. But like I said, I, I would be on the safe side if I'm bet MGM, but I, I believe that's not going to be an issue. Okay. Uh, moving on to our third story. Uh, during our week off, we missed a piece of U.S. sports betting history being made as the Colorado Avalanche clinched a spot in the Stanley Cup Finals and became the first team from a post-PASPA regulated betting state to reach the finals in one of the four major U.S. team sports leagues, NFL, NBA, MLB, or NHL. It's a bit surprising that it took this long. Uh, There certainly have been some near misses, like the Phoenix Suns making the NBA Finals a few months before betting launched in Arizona, and the Bengals making the Super Bowl before Ohio's launch. But the Avs are the first, and they won game four on Wednesday night to go up three games to one over the Lightning. And should Colorado go on to win one more game and win the Cup, that would be bad news for the sports books in the state of Colorado. DraftKings, BetRivers, and Superbook all acknowledge to Sports Handle that they need Tampa Bay to win to avoid losing, at least in Colorado, on their NHL futures and on finals bets. On the bright side for the books, the Avs were priced as a favorite most of the season, never higher than plus 550 to lift the cup. So at least they're not sweating any 50 to 1 type payouts. Anyway, John, are you as surprised as I was that with more than half the states now allowing betting, it took this long to get one into a finals? And do you want to offer a prediction on the next team after this to do it? I I know what team you're rooting for to be the next one. Yeah, I'm not that surprised at this because uh, just think of how many teams play in California, Texas, Mm -hmm. and Florida, and how no team that plays in New York has won a title since the Yankees in 2009 when legalized sports betting was just a gleam in the eyes of former New Jersey State Senator Ray Lesniak. So uh, remember, we also almost had a precedent for this too. You know, they called them New England Patriots for a reason, and New Hampshire rolled out sports betting at the end of 2019. Fortunately for the state lottery there, about 10 months after the Patriots won their last Super Bowl, so they dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, next up, opportunity you're talking about obviously is the world series yeah. and the yankees are on pace to go something like 162 and oh so um, <laughs> they have a good chance well their odds weren't that high before the season either uh the blue jays actually the only other al team with a shot from a, a legal betting state or in this case a province uh and actually yeah my mets are number one and again there's only one other realistic possibility above 500 and, and that uh, word might be a stretch uh, you tell me your phillies <laughs> would be that one yeah, there's a, they are certainly a, a longer shot, but not impossible. And I guess I'd throw in one other not impossible longer shot in the AL that the Chicago White Sox are uh, hovering around 500 and, and I guess can't be totally ruled out. But certainly the Yankees are the favorite to be the next team from a legal mm-hmm. betting state to make the finals with the, with the Mets uh, maybe slightly behind them in probability. But uh, yeah, the, the two New York teams certainly have the best chance. But you know, let's say the World Series ends up being Dodgers versus Astros. Then it rolls over to NFL. And mm. by the time of the Super Bowl, Ohio will be up and running. Uh, we have a, a pretty strong group of contenders from the NFL to be next. Uh, Buffalo Bills. It's on, on and on and on. I, it seems, I would say, pretty unlikely that we'll get through both the World Series and the next Super Bowl without at least one legal betting state being represented. Um, In any case, if the Avalanche do indeed win the cup, 
it's just a temporary loss for all those books. They, they know most of those betters will give the winnings back. That's how this works. So uh, don't feel too sorry for the sports books. Uh, they don't mind Colorado teams doing well. Now, New York teams, where the tax rate is so high that it's hard to turn a real profit, mm. that might be another story. The books might well care about the Yankees or Mets losing. But, you know, then again, these mobile sports books operate in numerous states. It's not the end of the world to have a losing month in one state. It doesn't mean you're having a losing month nationally. Yeah, let's not feel sorry for any of these books. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they can buy and sell us a few times over, I think. Um, so our fourth and final story this episode is a return to a strange vortex we spent some time in a couple of years ago, that overlap between DFS and The Bachelor, combining a passion of mine with John's admitted guilty pleasure, <sighs> and now adding in one of John's other areas of high interest, golf. Uh, on Sunday, Tanner Tolbert won DraftKings's Millionaire Maker Contest for the U.S. Open, turning his 15 entry into a million bucks. Actually, more than that, thanks to three other top 10 finishes with similar lineups among the many he entered. Tolbert was a contestant on The Bachelorette, and he met his wife, former Bachelor contestant Jade Roper Tolbert, through the show, and together they were embroiled in a major DFS controversy in early 2020, when one of Jade's lineups won a million dollars, but very strong indicators pointed toward Tanner using her account on top of his to enter more lineups than was permitted from a single account. She was stripped of the win and the payday, but Tanner was not banned from the site. So he has continued plugging away and now claimed his massive victory. There were a lot of interesting, funny, or angry comments on Twitter, but I think my favorite was from Neil Orfield, who wrote, quote, Tanner Tolbert is going to win his second Millie today. It'll be national news. Our families and friends will lose what little respect they had for our profession. That bachelor guy has won more than you. Our wives will leave us. We had a good run, end quote. Uh, John, as our resident bachelor expert, uh, you see, I, I've stuck with Survivor all the way through, but I only lasted about five or six seasons in Bachelor Nation. So you're the bachelor expert. Would you have guessed back in the day that Tanner had DFS greatness in him? And any opinion on whether it's good for the DFS industry to have a minor celebrity win or bad to have someone previously found guilty of collusion win? You know, no offense to Tanner, but I didn't think he had any greatness in him on any okay. level. You know, for those not familiar with Bachelor in Paradise, which is where they met about seven or eight years ago, um, it's more than a dozen beautiful, scantily clad, and often inebriated people at a resort in Mexico, you know, canoodling. And uh, now Jade wowed every guy there seven or eight years ago, to which a million or so wives asked, gee, there are so many pretty ladies. Why are they all so focused on her? And a million husbands replied, Honey, I have no idea before abruptly <laughs> changing the topic. <laughs> anyway, Tanner looks and acts like a car salesman, which is what he is, or he was anyway, until he did this. So he never struck me as particularly brilliant, but repeated success in DFS is never luck. So he has aptitude, discipline, and dedication that I didn't see in him. And he outkicked his coverage big time on the relationship front to boot. So okay. good for him. Um, I think this story is a net win for DFS because he has a modicum of popularity and it gets the industry a little limelight. That's even a takeaway for a casual player really should be, wait, how many lines did he fill out anyway? And he's not the only one who has multiple checks with six figures and up. What am I even thinking trying to beat these guys? I have no chance. But I don't think that actually will be the general reaction. I mean, you know, people are funny. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it is good for DFS either way. Um, Tolbert is, you know, no disrespect to The Bachelor, but I, I think we can call him a very minor celebrity. Yeah. So it's not like this is getting that much attention, but right. still a little extra attention is good and controversy sells. I, I don't think this threatens the integrity of the game one bit to have a formerly accused cheater uh, win like this. I don't think it hurts participation. If anything, it's a little like the moneymaker effect. Uh, check out my book um, on a <laughs> on a much smaller go. scale, you know, but that some dude who's never played DFS might see this story and say, you know, hey, if he can win a million bucks, I can too. Let me take a shot. Not realizing, of course, that Tolbert clearly takes his DFS seriously and, and puts in a lot of time and effort and isn't just some lucky idiot, although he may also be lucky and he may also be an idiot. I have no idea, but he's obviously got some aptitude for DFS. Um, there was no controversy to this particular win, aside from the question of whether Tolbert should have been banned from DraftKings in 2020. I personally think that at worst, it merited a temporary ban, not a permanent ban. So now, two plus years later, I have no issue with him being able to fire 100 plus entries at this. He risked big money and apparently made some good lineup choices. Uh, according to our friend Dan Bach, uh, Tanner had Fitzpatrick and Zalatoris in every single lineup he made yeah. and then mixed up some of the other players a little bit. And for a cheap guy to make the lineups work, he had Denny McCarthy in more than 80% of his lineups, even mm -hmm. though McCarthy was only 4% owned overall. So this looks to me like a well-earned victory. He took some bold stands and hit on them. Yeah, McCarthy is not a well-known guy, but he's probably the best putter on the tour. And um, this was a good course for him. And uh, even Fitzpatrick and Zalatoris alone were uh, clever picks because obviously they're not the biggest names and you're you're sort of ignoring the five or six most obvious ones and yet those two clearly had a real chance so uh, uh I, it, his, his selections were phenomenal however he did them i don't know look i don't know how he got jade and i don't know how he won this contest but <laughs> he's got something that i that i just don't see at a casual look but that goes to your point of like Anybody who's ever seen the show, even a couple of times, re vaguely remembers this guy. He doesn't strike you as like, oh, I can't keep up with that guy. That guy's got everything. He's got it all figured out. He seems like a regular guy, you know, so. Yeah, so uh, good, good for DFS, I guess. Good for encouraging yep. everyone to take a shot if this guy sure. can do it. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. We've had plenty of successful sports bettors on our podcast over the years, and there are certain pieces of advice they've all given with regard to having a shot at beating the books in the long run. Namely, they've all stressed the importance of price shopping across multiple operators and of looking for value in softer markets, because if you're betting only, say, closing lines on NFL point spreads, you're never going to come out ahead. That brings us to this week's guest as player props when shopped properly can be a sharp better's best friend. Joining us now is the founder and CEO of the prop betting research app, props.cash, Pete Smolik. Pete, welcome to Gamble On. Thanks for having me, Eric and John. Let's start with the background on props.cash. I believe you launched a little over a year ago. Uh, how did the idea develop and, and how complicated was it to engineer the software? Uh, I'll give you a bit of a background first. Uh, I, I trained as a, an elementary school math teacher and tried to become an elementary school math teacher here in Hamilton, Ontario, around 2011. I wasn't able to get into the system 
Uh, there was too many teachers in the area at the time. So I pivoted and got into a, the startup scene. Anyways, 10 years later, fast forward, I've, I've been able to work with some really strong engineers and I'd always had a passion for teaching. So two years ago, I built a piece of software for students to help them learn math using MBA data. I think this is, I, I'm, I'm heavily invested in helping people learn math using very applicable data. It just so happens that sports data and props is a great fulcrum for, for learning math. So I built this tool and I beta tested it across North America with about 50 teachers and the students and teachers liked it, but there wasn't a viable business. I want to ask the teachers to pay a monthly subscription. They said they weren't interested in, in paying above and beyond um, what their allowance was for tools in the classroom. So I've been playing props for about 20 years um, here in Canada we had Bowman's and Bet365 and Prop's been around for a while. And I pivoted the software um, with all these graphs to help me with my prop bets. And I realized that they started working. Um, I was having success with props. There's just the sheer volume of props every night. That's very hard to digest using box scores. And so I created a sandbox where you can move the data around and, um, kind of create a, you can create a sandbox for learning and teaching yourself and ingesting that volume of data in a, in a more easy uh, manner. Hmm. So, and, so, uh, so it wasn't a, a particularly heavy lift, I guess, from going from the educational software you had started with into what became props.cash. You were like, what percentage of the way there were you already? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the database was set up we had ingested all this data. However, the front end needed a bit of a lift. Um, it, we had the graphs, so we just had to repurpose them. We had to add the betting line. We didn't want to have the betting line for children. Um, so there's a few, a few slight tweaks, but, but you know, it was, it was a considerable amount of the way there. So it's, it speaks to the power of building scalable software and software that has um, kind of isolation. So we could, you know, repurpose that backend for a whole new um, platform. It was a pretty awesome process and it happened very organically. People started buying the product right away when we launched it. My friends encouraged me to put it online and people literally started signing up the day of. Uh, we put a, put a couple of the graphs up on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, Pete, I was going to just ask you whether this is for professional gamblers or casual players. And that's too easy an answer because you can say both, of course. So uh, uh, maybe you can be more specific <laughs> as what does it do for professional gambler? Or what does it do for casual player? Yeah, so it's a sandbox of historical data at this point. We don't have any projections or kind of machine learning that 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 interprets that historical data. So it really depends on how much weight the gambler puts on historical data. I think we're seeing that newer betters put maybe a certain amount of emphasis on historical data and sharper betters put a different uh, amount of emphasis on historical data for props. Uh, what the tool does, it, it allows uh, anybody that cares about the historical data to, to interpret the data much more easily than you would if you had to input that data on Excel yourself or just look at a table of numbers. We've created... Um, ways that the user can interact with the data much more fluidly and in turn see the data in new ways. So I know I'm going for the easy answer. It, it is both, but I think our, our sweet spot has been with the newer betters, the shallow end betters that are looking to ground themselves in a bit more data. And there, there's just 
too much data to ingest to get going at the very beginning. You mentioned the two groups that uh, rely more or less on historical data. Do the pros or the Joes, as they say, uh, rely more on historical data? I would need you guys to help me with this answer. Um, <laughs> I, I think I am more on the Joe side than the pro side. <laughs> and I, I rely on historical data, but I hear from a lot of sharps that the historical data can be very misleading and it can't be viewed in isolation. So yeah, I mean, what do you think? Like as a sharp better or in interacting with sharp betters, where would you put that emphasis? That, that, that's the key point in, in, in interacting with sharp betters. We are definitely, uh, all three of us on this call fit, fit the Joe category more than the pro category. You have no um, idea. But, but yeah, I mean, we certainly have interacted with some of those people who have their models that seem to project forward more. And I guess those, those you would call entirely sharps. I don't think there are too many amateurs doing their projecting forward. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I would also say that there's a whole different style of betting where people are, and this is the theme of your show, line shopping. A lot of sharp bettors will, may not even look at um, player data. They may strictly look at, at lines and find you know, value in lines or certain patterns in line movements that are, are profitable pockets. This is a different way of thinking about betting and a different approach in analyzing uh, player data. Um, I, I don't have a clear solution. I'm actually what's right uh, or what's wrong, but it's just a totally different approach. Right. Um, all right. So as both the casual better that you are and as the uh, guy uh, overseeing this, this app, um, are there particular markets that you found to be soft? Like, for example, I, I know that WNBA is, is one of the leagues you offer data on. Are there bigger edges to be had betting WNBA props than, say, an NFL quarterback's yardage prop? Or, or, or do you find that the percentages and potential advantages are all around the same as long as you shop around? It, I think with prop market, the prop market, it's a game of cat and mouse. Um, the, the newer markets generally have more value than mature markets. Uh, the books have an opportunity to adjust their lines and and help establish their kind of machine learning algorithms with a volume. And so when you have new props introduced to the market, you just have less volume. We saw that at the beginning of the year with shots on goal props in the NHL. Uh, there were plus lines that had no business being there at the beginning of the season, towards the end of the season, th those were non-existent. So I think we're, uh, we're chasing new markets and we appreciate that strategy because at, at, in that time frame when they're, they're new, we can find value for for community. What about player prop futures? Um, you know, the sort of the season long kind of things. I'm not sure if, if, if your app crunches those numbers or, or just outside the app as, as someone with an interest in sports betting, if you've analyzed it, but do you, do you find there to be uh, a lot of opportunity to beat the books on, on those sort of season long player props? We haven't attacked that, that angle. We are looking at the day to day, um, better at this point uh, versus the futures. The futures, although there are similar similarities in terms of the way that they're thought about, they are distinctly different markets and require different trains of thought, in my opinion. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm kind of interested in the uh, for, just for the casual better, which I would qualify as and a, a Joe for sure um, is I tend to think um, NFL game six and a half points or whatever, seven points. Well, you know, maybe I could have gotten seven, but in one game, it's not going to matter. The game's not going to be won by seven exactly or six exactly, whatever. Um, but then obviously you don't have to play that often or bet that often. And then you run into one that you could have won and you did lose. So, you know, I wonder if you can kind of underscore the importance of your, your product in improving a casual player's bottom line. Like it, it seems like, um, uh, especially if you're making straight bets, you're not taking long shots or whatever, you're going to win, you know, 45 to 55% of the time if you're an amateur and you know, how much of a difference it can make to have a lot of different lines to look at to where, you know, can help you either, you know, uh, uh, break even, you maybe can make money or a professional. Can they, what, what can they add? Like how much of a difference does it really make to have that? Cause I think it's un, not as well understood by some casual bettors. It's a great question. And I think there are ways to measure that. And we have not measured that at this point. Um, we see the, the experience of researching bets as um, an experience in and of itself. Um, it, it's hard to know because we get very anecdotal feedback from our users, right? Saying we help them, but we don't hear from people that have lost tickets. So it's hard to know quantitatively um, that that answer um, it's a it's a question I ask myself all the time and even setting up the process to be able to do that is challenging because we don't have access to people's betting accounts we don't ask for integration that way so yeah we don't have the answer to that it's a great train of thought though I'm sort of a, a big picture sort of thing to, to wrap up that I'm, I'm thinking about now as I'm hearing you talking and, and coming from your math background is whether being so into the math of it all takes any of the fun out of out, out of sports betting for you or does it does it enhance it? Are you so, um, you know, so, so fired up a, a, about math and, and so into the math that, that it, it enhances the experience for you of being a sports better? It enhances the experience for me. I think my life principle is to help people get better at math uh, using sports data. And I think a lot of people are using our tool and get better, getting better at math without even thinking that they are getting better at math. <laughs> so okay. I'm sneaking it. Um, <laughs> and I mean, there are times though where uh, long days of betting or uh, working on the platform where you don't really want to place a bet that night. It's a little too close to the sun. Uh, after a long day of looking at hundreds of odds, thousands of odds, um, that happens. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, so I, I don't know if that would answer the question, but I, I, I yeah, so. I think so. Well, it seems like uh, the Ontario Elementary School community's loss has been the uh, sports betting community's <laughs> gain. Uh, so uh, really interesting stuff, uh, what you're doing with props.cash. And it's been great talking to you, Pete. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, John. Appreciate right, it. Thanks, thanks, Pete. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Let's update our betting bankroll. And finally, 
one of our big long shot bets hit. Uh, we scored a 30 to one win, which I'm pretty sure represents the longest odds we've hit on since the Julian Edelman 50 to one Super Bowl MVP bet back in 2019. In this case, it was your bet, John, on Matt Fitzpatrick to win the U.S. Open that helps us cut into our debt a $20 wager that returned $620. So well done on that one, John. There was a small sacrifice alongside it. We lost 20 bucks on Sung J.M. to win at 66 to 1. But you more than made up for that by staying red hot as the podcasting world's leading USFL <laughs> sharp, backing the Breakers minus three in week nine, which they covered easily. And it was a nice one and a half unit bet, uh, winning us $150. Now for the bad news, uh, your season long bet on the field to win the NBA title missed when California's Golden State Warriors beat the Boston Celtics. We lose $100 there. Speaking of the Warriors, I had the under on Steph Curry in game four when he delivered his best game of the series. So pretty bad miss there cost us $115. And lastly, I remained cold on boxing, but it was only a small loss. We dropped 30 bucks on my Angulo by decision upset pick. Add it all up and we won $485 on the week, putting us down by $3,057 overall. We have $820 on hold in futures bets. That leaves us with $6,123 available to bet with this week. And I'm up first, and I'm going to make an MLB futures bet. And it hurts that we didn't have a podcast last week because I would have made this bet a week ago at much better odds, uh, just as I did in real life. And I should note, this is not thanks to my own sharpness by any means. This is thanks to a tweet from our friend Brad Feinberg, who pointed out that the Cleveland Guardians, who were at the time three games back of the Twins in second place in the AL Central, were way overpriced at plus 700 to win the division. Brad said he thought they should have been about plus 350. I wasn't able to get the plus 700 price, but close enough. I got them at plus 650. Now they're in first place, one game ahead of the Twins and up four and a half on the preseason favorite White Sox. So I'm feeling good about my plus 650 bet, but the price has, of course, come down. They were plus 350 yesterday when I was putting together my picks for the podcast. Now they're plus 300. We just keep losing value, uh, but still... I think that's a good price as the books continue to not give this team much respect with the twins at plus 150 and the struggling White Sox at plus 155. Every other current division leader is at minus money. Some of them huge minus money, like the Astros at minus 1700. Uh, but Cleveland is plus 300. I like it. Their success isn't totally fluky. Their real record and their Pythagorean record are aligned. So let's bet $50 to win 150 on the Guardians to win the division. All right. Sounds good. And yeah, playoff time in the USFL. Let's see if my obscure league savant skills continue into the postseason. So <laughs> in the North Division, it's the six and four Philadelphia Stars. My preseason pick, by the way, at 12 to one against the New Jersey Generals. We haven't lost since week one. Uh, setting aside a glorified scrimmage they played in last week's uh, meaningless final game. The Stars and Generals also locked horns in week three. The Generals won 24-16 as they rallied with two fourth quarter touchdowns. I just think the generals have improved more the last eight weeks than the stars have though. So I will take them on the money line at minus 200 on bet FGM and a bet of 50 units rather than give the four and a half points and maybe get burned on both ends. I'm not too locked in on that, but the minor hedge um, in the South title game, the Birmingham stallions are giving five points to the New Orleans breakers in another matchup of nine and one versus six and four. In more coincidences, these teams also met in week three, and the winning Stallions also had to rally in the fourth quarter. They won 22-13. And the second matchup in week eight also was won by the Stallions, 10-9 on a fourth quarter field goal. 
Not only do I not believe the Stallions have proven themselves with a better team here, but for the first time all season, they will not have a home crowd in front of them. Remember, all USFL games this year were played in Birmingham. They're holding the playoffs, though, in Canton, Ohio, for reasons that escape me. So uh, with all that said, give me 110 units to win 100 on the Breakers plus five on DraftKings. Okay, so uh, I'm sort of ha- I'm half rooting with you as in real life right before the season started. I got uh, 10 bucks on the, the breakers to win the title at plus 550 mm. and 10 bucks on the stars at plus 650. Uh, mm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of pulling for, for those two, but I suppose mm. now I have uh, a bit of a, a hedge uh, as you do with, with the generals uh, should they prevail, but we're, we're definitely both on board with the, with the breakers. Um, and of course I have not watched a second of any of this USFL action all season. So uh, you're the sharp. I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Uh, once again, uh, for my second bet, I, I will try to break my boxing cold streak. I'm going with a parlay of two favorites on the same fight card. Saturday night, we have a women's fight. uh, One of the best in the world, undefeated Jessica McCaskill facing a solid opponent in Alma Ibarra. McCaskill is a minus 600 favorite, not a ton of value there, but as I've mentioned before in these women's fights with two minute rounds, knockouts are harder to come by. McCaskill is not a big puncher. The opponent is world-class. So I think McCaskill by decision at minus 225 is much better value than McCaskill outright at minus 600. Uh, That said, minus 225 is still a bit steep for one of our bets. So let's bring it down by parlaying it with a fighter. I see as nearly a sure thing. Marajan Akhmedaliev is a minus 700 favorite over Ronnie Rios. I think he should be wider than that. I don't see this as a competitive fight. Akhmedaliev is probably about 95% likely to win. So if we take McCaskill by decision at minus 225 and Akhmedaliev just to win, regardless of winning method at minus 700, that parlay comes out to minus 154. So here goes nothing. $154 to win 100 on that two-leg boxing parlay. Yeah, yeah, you got to shake out of that streak, uh, Eric. You're, uh, I hope you're so. killing. You're killing us. <laughs> so anyway, so we go to Hartford for this week's uh, uh, PGA Tour stop, and looking for another young golfer like Fitzpatrick, who's a bit underrated. Um, say hello to Sam Burns and give me 30 units on him to win 18 to one odds from BetMGM, and also top 20s at 50 units apiece with Joaquin Neiman at plus 125, and the criminally underrated still for some reason Seamus Power at plus 190. Okay, so that's $50 on each of them for the top 20. Okay, and that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks, everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Pete Smolik. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, well, our pal Tanner had a, a clearly unambiguous, uh, joyful Sunday U.S. Open golf final round. But for me, a little confusing. Uh, so I chose four players in my golf pool, three players in real life, and two players of my podcast picks, nine different players. So we head to the back nine, really only three golfers who might win. And yep, I've got one from column A, one from column B, one from <laughs> column C. So column A, of course, was Fitzpatrick, and we badly needed a 600-unit pick-me-up to boost our sorry bankroll. So mm-hmm. I really wanted that. Column B was Tanner's other favorite, Will Zalatoris. I had him. If he wins, I collect $250 in cash. Great. But due to the other golf pool selections, it would end my hopes of winning the title with eight weeks to go and probably eliminate me, too, from any money slot. Mm, that's a 
mixed bag there. And column C was Scotty Scheffler, who I did have in the pool. His win would boost me to a very strong second place. And, well, I wanted that too. So three wants. <laughs> so I probably should have rooted mainly for the 250 bucks, right? But yeah. I didn't, which has led me to a little self-reflection on whether I enjoy this pool too much. <laughs> but but the winner after eight more weeks gets roughly 500 bucks. Runner-up gets around that same 250 and third place gets you about 100 So I got the podcast jackpot and I moved into third place in the pool. And what I've learned from the experience really is that I guess I'm betting on me, really. So with that, until next time, everybody, gamble on.